debates. And if uh, yeah, most of you know, this is the last meeting we'll have before the holidays. And we'll come back again then on the 9th. That's, that is a Thursday. Okay. If it isn't the closest Thursday to the 9th. <laughs> All right. If you want to have a look with us, please, to Daniel the 5th. Now again, one would like to read this whole chapter, but for time's sake, we uh, uh, cannot do that now. It is, of course, the very familiar incident of Daniel reading the handwriting on the wall. It needs to be remembered that Daniel is a very old man by this time. He served through 70 years of Babylonian captivity in the court of Nebuchadnezzar and the kings to follow. Belshazzar, who is before us in this chapter, is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And his grandmother, the wife of Nebuchadnezzar, is going to come on the scene in the midst of all of this to give him counsel. This party that Belshazzar is throwing, evidently uh, the uh, queen mother was not uh, approving of. At least she certainly didn't want to be present there. And when it began to be noised abroad that this most unusual incident had taken place in the court, then the word came to her ear and she came in to tell her grandson that uh, there was a prophet in the... Uh, court of Babylon that in whom the spirit of the holy gods dwelt and he was able to straighten out this thing for him the message he was going to receive obviously was not a pleasant one to him but he was faithful to his promise anyhow for whatever it was worth so allow me to skip uh, read a few and skip verses and then we'll come back and see the whole uh, thesis that the Lord's intending to set out in this chapter verse 1 Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Now you understand that the reason for this act, he's boasting in the fact of their conquests, and he's bringing these special vessels forward because, of course, they were unique but because they pointed to the conquests of the king of Babylon. So it was really an act of blasphemy against the God of Israel. And they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives, his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and the gods of silver and bronze and iron and wood and of stone. So using those vessels that were sanctified uh, to Jehovah God of Israel, for the purposes of praising the gods of stone. Now verse 5. And in the same hour there came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the lampstand upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. And then the king's countenance was changed. And I really appreciate the King James here. No translation says it quite like this. And his thoughts troubled him, I dare say so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. It's hard to improve on that terminology. <laughs> and the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers and the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. And the king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing and show me its interpretation shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Now the reason he said third ruler is because his father was already first ruler in the kingdom. Belshazzar was second ruler, and so that's the highest Belshazzar uh, could offer. Verse 9, Then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled. I'm sorry, verse 8. Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing, nor make known to the king the interpretation of it. And then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed in him, and his lords were perplexed. Now the queen, now this is the queen mother, wife of Nebuchadnezzar, who has by this time died. Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting house, and the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, or let thy countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And we've emphasized this before, but that's an important phrase. They were accustomed to dealing with unholy gods. Daniel was that one in whom was the spirit of the holy gods. The spirit that motivated Daniel, even though they couldn't define the difference, was very different than the kind of spirits that they were accustomed to dealing with. They could note the difference, you understand, between what was a demon and what was holy. You can see that if I could just bring it up very quickly. 
in the experience of the Israelites who knew in Jesus' day those who had demons and those who didn't. We have other terms of describing people in those cases now, which is a little more, more how you say, uh, acceptable word for that. Uh, uh, sophisticated. Sophisticated, all right. That wasn't the word. That does very nicely. Much more sophisticated than just saying that's a demon. Well, they could tell the difference in Jesus' day. They could tell the difference here. So Daniel was that one in whom was the spirit of the holy gods. Now, um, Belshazzar, in repeating this phrase, does not use the term holy because he's still on the outside looking in. But now Nebuchadnezzar, we've noted in time past, we are convinced anyhow, is present in the Lord now in the righteousness of God because God taught him the hard way who it was that ruled in the heavens. And when Nebuchadnezzar finally had gone through all of these experiences that God had sent him through, including the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace and send him out on the backside of the fields for seven years as a demon-possessed man to eat straw like an ox. And finally he recognized that the Most High ruled in the heavens and he gave the kingdom to whosoever he would and there was no God like this God that Daniel served. Well, this is Mama Nebuchadnezzar here who learned those same lessons with him. And so she understands something of uh, uh, Daniel. However, Daniel's been kind of on the shelf now for a number of years. He's probably about 75, at least 75 years old now. They haven't had occasion to call on him for some time. The period of spiritual lethargy in Babylon is serious. It's much like it was in the days of Saul when they sought not after the Lord at the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. They had just so decayed spiritually. If that was true in Israel, you can imagine how bad it was in Babylon. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar is not even known to Belshazzar. And so now he brings him forth after all of these years to give counsel. Verse 12. For as much as an excellent spirit of knowledge and understanding and interpreting of dreams and revelation and hard sentences and dissolvings of doubt were found in the same Daniel whom King Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sorry, whom King, the king named Belshazzar, now let Daniel be called and he shall show the interpretation. Then was Daniel brought in before the king, and the king spoke and said to Daniel, Art thou that Daniel who art of the children of the captivity of Judah? whom the king my father brought out of Jewry. And you understand, of course, that in the Aramaic, in the Chaldaic, in the Hebrew, there is no word for grandfather or grandson. It's simply father, and that stood for grandfather wherever it was necessary. I've heard of thee that the spirit of the gods is in thee. Now, you notice he didn't say holy gods because he doesn't have any reference to holy gods. That's not been his experience. He's very uh, accustomed to unholy gods. So this was known by his mother, but not to him. I'm going to skip down for time's sake, verse 17. He's promised him to be third ruler in the kingdom and all of this other, uh, various other gifts and so forth. And then Daniel answered and said unto the king, Let thy gifts be to thyself, and give thy rewards to another. And yet I will read the writing unto the king, and make known to him the interpretation. I have to say this while I'm here. Doesn't that sound like the answer of an old man who's walked with the Lord, who sees the vanity of all that's to be associated with this earthly sojourner? I so appreciate that. Let thy gifts be to thyself and give the, your rewards to another. But I'll read the writing for you. Thou king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. And whom he would he slew and whom he would he kept alive and whom he would he set up and whom he would he put down. And when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was disposed, disposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him, and was driven from the sons of men. And his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild asses, and he fed them. He fed, they fed him, I'm sorry, with grass like an oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and he pointeth over it whomsoever he will. What a marvelous lesson. And thou, O son, his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this. Now there's the key to what's happening. But hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives, concubines, have drunk wine from them, and thou hast prayed the God, praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor know, and the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways thou hast not glorified. Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this is the writing that was written. Now I'm going to put in a parenthesis here to note something. 
This is probably the only incident in the Old Testament where the gift of tongues is noted. It's interesting to see that it was an interpretation and not a translation. You all note that. Uh, you'll notice in 1 Corinthians 14 when the Apostle Paul, well, 1 Corinthians 12 when he defines the gift itself, addresses the function of interpretation of tongues. It is not translation of tongues, it is interpretation. That's why you may hear a ministry in tongues which is very short and the uh, uh, interpretation may be very long because it is an interpretation, not a translation. You might hear a tongue which is very long and the interpretation that's very short because it is an interpretation and not a translation. Somebody has said on one occasion, boy, it gained a lot in the translation, didn't it? No, it wasn't a translation. It was an interpretation. God was telling us what He meant, not everything He said. All right, what you have before you here is an interpretation and not a translation. And that ought to be evident in that there are very few words written on the wall, but a great deal of explanation that goes along with it. And a great deal of implication, I might add. So this is the writing that was written, verse 25. Mine, mine, tikel, euphersen. The little girl said, mini, mini, tickle to parson. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mine. God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. So it read, numbered, numbered. The interpretation is, God hath numbered thy kingdom, Belshazzar, and has finished it. Tikel. Thou art weighed, the word means weighed, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. So Daniel takes that one word, tikel, weighed, and he says, Belshazzar, God has weighed you in the balances and he has found you wanting. Verse 28, Paris. Thy kingdom is divided. Now, by the way, it's a takeoff on two words, the word for divided and the word for the Persians. Thy kingdom is divided and is given to the Medes and to the Persians. Very simple interpretation. And then commanded Belshazzar, they clothed Daniel with scarlet, put a chain of gold about his neck. He had to go through with this, in spite of how shocking was the interpretation, because he had made a promise as the king. And he made a proclamation concerning him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain, and Darius the Mede took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. All right, now, the intent of all of this is the fall of the kingdom of Babylon. Now, a couple of things need to be understood about the kingdom of Babylon. That it has been, from day one, the root of the organized system of Satan, which was intended to be the counterfeit of the revelation of redemption. For example, when God was, was prepared, Genesis chapter 11, to call out Abraham, which of course happened in Genesis chapter 12, then Satan comes on the scene and he prepares his counterfeit system. His counterfeit system was rooted in a man named Nimrod. God's system was rooted in a man named Abram. Before God changed his name, we'll leave it at that. Now it was the purpose of the Lord to bring a promised seed out of Abram and his name was going to be Isaac. Did I spell that right? Close enough anyhow. And that promised seed was going to be the line through which God would establish for himself a nation among the nations. And as we've indicated to you in past lessons, God looked out over the nations of the world and he chose for himself a wife out of the nations of the world. And that wife's name was Israel. And Israel came out of this line. And Israel was chosen for three prime reasons, to be a repository for the truth of God, to be a channel for the coming Messiah, to be a witness of the one true living God in the earth. And this was the channel that God had set aside for that purpose, until ultimately that line produces the Messiah as it continues to narrow down from Isaac to Jacob to the line of, uh, of uh, the king. First, uh, the, not first king, second. David, thank you, yes. And then ultimately Messiah out of that line. But as God is producing a line through Isaac, Satan begins to produce a line through this man, Nimrod. Nimrod had a wife named Semiramis who claimed to be a virgin. And she claimed to give, verse, give birth to a virgin son who was the incarnation of Nimrod, the sun god, and his name was Tammuz. And this was the birth of what is called in Scripture the mystery of iniquity. How do you spell mystery? M-Y-S? T-E-R-Y. Okay. 
M I S. Okay, pretend that was an I. No. The, hmm? That's right. Is that right? Okay, well, whatever it is, that word is mystery. Okay, that's what that's supposed to be. <laughs> so the mystery of iniquity had its birth in Genesis 11. The system of God's redemptive work had its birth insofar as this preparation of the line for Messiah in the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Now these two lines have run parallel through the scripture. For example, Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares sown in one field. God says, let them both grow together until the harvest, and when the harvest comes, then I was going to, he said he's going to send his angels, the reapers, and they're going to separate between what's wheat and what's tares, lest in trying to root them up then, you root up some of the wheat with them. Because this demarcation line between the two is so difficult to discern. It takes the mind of the Spirit to discern it. So this is a counterfeit system that is intended by Satan to look like the real thing. Now all of this through the Scripture is seen in the figure of Babylon the Great. Now what does Babylon mean? Babel, if you would. Confusion. It's really a takeoff on a Hebrew word which means confusion. If it were literally translated into Chaldaic, it would mean gate of Bel. And Bel, of course, was one of the chief gods. But it, as you relate it to the Hebrew language, it's a subtle reference to the word for confusion. So Babylon stands for confusion all the way through the Scripture. In contrast to that is Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, of course, is the city of peace, or the, literally the foundation of peace. So while Satan is preparing for himself a city, Babylon the Great, God is preparing for himself a city, Jerusalem, which is above, who is the mother of us all. Y'all still with us? Mm -hmm. All right, now, if Satan is building this system through the Scripture, he's going to prophesy for us in Daniel chapter 5 that God is going to destroy this system. This is the system that carried away captive his people, became an instrument in the hands of God because of its wickedness to work his judgment upon the land of Judah. Well, no nation or people ever lays a hand upon the people of Israel but what they suffer severely for the promise that God gave to Abraham, Genesis 12, Whosoever blesseth thee, I will bless. Whosoever curseth thee, I will curse. And in thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That promise stands as surely today as it did in the day that God spoke it to Abraham. Uh, feel a bunny path right there. Read a book. I'll say it quickly. Read a book the other day. I came into uh, Franklin's office. He was laying on his desk. And I said, Franklin, I had like to read that. And he said, that's why I got to lay it out there once you read it. So I picked it up. To whom is God betrothed was the title of it. You know, that kind of intrigued me. And I read it, and I'll spare you all the details, but don't waste your time with it. <laughs> that was the biggest bunch of confusion. And the fellow could not make the distinction between Jesus betrothed to the church, his bride, and God betrothed to Israel, his wife. And the wife, through that wife, God begat a son, Jesus, and for that son, Jesus, he's calling out a bride for the Gentiles. That's a part of the family of God in heaven and on earth. And it's a sad commentary that the distinction is not made by so many. And it confuses the whole work of redemption that God's bringing to pass in the earth between the family of God and the family in, uh, the family of God in, uh, what's that place up there again? Heaven, heaven and in earth, yes. My, 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 my. Oh, let, let go of that. I'm still thinking ahead anyhow. Okay, so God is out to destroy then the system of Babylon. Now allow me to remove this. It goes on, of course, uh, whether I remove it or not. Uh, the ultimate end of this is Revelation chapter 17. Now will you have a look with me there, please? And by the way, questions please if they come up. And I read confusion here. Please do let me uh, clarify that. Revelation chapter 17 addresses the system of mystery Babylon. Revelation chapter 18 addresses the, I'm sorry, the uh, religious system of mystery Babylon. And Revelation chapter 18, the political system of mystery Babylon. The religious system is destroyed in chapter 17. The political system is destroyed in chapter 18. Now remember again that it is the custom of the Lord to always reestablish anything that's ever come against His people and destroy it in the place of its nativity, where it was born. Ezekiel chapter 21, you get that. Uh, 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 Isaiah chapter 13, you get that. It is a principle of God's dealings and judgment to always bring any people 
back to their place of origin and judge them there. That is why I hold the conviction along with some others, I'll hide with a few other brethren at the same time, that the city of Babylon in Iraq must be of necessity rebuilt so that God can judge it. Its destruction is not complete. The prophecies given concerning it are not complete. And therefore you can count on the Lord restoring it to bring utter judgment upon it. And we shall see in a moment that there is first of all that literal meaning in any prophecy of destruction. And then there is that spiritual meaning. And then there is that typical meaning. I would suggest to you in just a moment that a lot of good men, and quite frankly, it's awfully hard to flack the conclusions they've come to even though you can't take chapter and verse and say, Thus saith the Lord with it. It is the conclusion of a lot of good men that the good old USNA is the typical meaning of Babylon in the Scripture. We'll have a look at that in a moment. Yes, ma'am. What do you mean typical meaning? That is to say that every nation in ancient time has a parallel in modern time. Literal meaning is Babylon itself in Iraq, the city in Iraq, which is being rebuilt right now for that matter, yes. Okay, so what's the typical? The United States. Oh, That's I, the oh, parallel in another nation. The spiritual meaning addresses its atmosphere in this age, which is what I want to address right now. Look at me in Revelation 17. There is a principle, a spiritual principle, which pervades the earth. It's called Mystery Babylon. That mystery Babylon is the uh, promotion of the counterfeit religious system that looks like the real thing but isn't. Now, all of us here, we understand the difference between what's Christian and what's Christendom. Hello? <clears throat> Stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Christianity is constituted by every born-again believer from Pentecost to the translation. But Christendom is that sphere which is influenced by Christianity. For example... The United States has been, well, at least it has been in time past, a little hard to discern that right now, it's been thought of as a Christian nation. Italy is thought of as a Christian nation. Well, in the first place, there's no such thing as a Christian nation. The Scripture addresses the nations of them that are saved, but it never refers to a saved nation. You all make that distinction? Yeah. One addresses the people who inhabit it. The other addresses the nation as a whole, and a nation is what its people are. And to refer to this nation then as a Christian nation is only in name because it's been influenced by Christianity and because its laws are established on Christian and biblical principles, it is a part of Christendom. But Christians within Christendom are a real minority. You follow that distinction now? So Mystery Babylon works within the sphere of Christendom. And when Satan was beginning to build his counterfeit, he had to incorporate into Christianity those things which had the flavor of being Christian, but which were in fact pagan. We'll come back to that and illustrate in just a moment. Yes, ma'am. This may sound like a stupid question, but why do they call it mystery? The mystery of iniquity? Because the only ones that understand it are the believers. A mystery oh. in the scripture, the, the, it's a transliteration as a matter of fact of the Greek. Mysterion is the Greek word. And it means literally sacred secret. Uh, we, we would think of it in terms of, for instance, a lodge secret that's supposed to belong only to the initiated. Those who are made members are told the mysteries, but people on the outside aren't, aren't supposed to know. Everybody knows, but they're not supposed to know, you know, so we pretend they don't know. The mysteries, then, that God has given to the church of Jesus Christ are those truths in the Scripture, and there are 11 of I'm sorry, 12 of them altogether, but seven of them particularly prominent and relate to the church. Those mysteries in the Scripture are revelations which God has given to His church concerning what He's doing in the earth. That's why Jesus said to the disciples, uh, I haven't called you servants, I've called you friends, for a servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. Therefore, I've called you friends. The Lord will do nothing except He reveals it to His servants, the prophets. So the Lord is letting us in on His mysterious workings in the earth. But the world doesn't understand. And the world can look at it and be totally deceived. Because the spirit of error works in them. So Jesus said to the Pharisees, You believe me not because my word is not in you. So if the word isn't in us to give us that understanding, then it goes right past us. So Revelation 17 is the destruction then of this mystery of iniquity, this religious system. And there came, verse 1, 
And there came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls and talked with me, saying, Come here, and I will show thee the, the, the judgment of the great harlot, or great whore, that sitteth upon many waters. Now the waters on which the woman sitteth are peoples and tribes and tongues and nations. Uh, look at that in verse 15. I'll point it out, I guess, since I'm here. Verse 15. And he saith unto me, The waters on which the woman sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Always you see that in a fourfold sense, because four is a world number. So these waters in the prophetic scripture point to Gentile nations. If I may be forgiven the repetition, when the psalmist said the voice of the Lord is mightier than the noise of many waters, he was not saying by that that God could holler louder than the surf on Maui, but rather that when God speaks, all of the nations of the world are subdued by the voice of his mouth. So the waters address nations, and the land addresses Israel. The sand on the seashore, you'll recall, is how uh, God uh, uh, pointed out uh, uh, Israel to... Uh, uh, Thank you, sister. Uh, There's some symbolism. Silver goblin. Silver silver goblin, goblin silver I'm sorry? I was wondering if there was some symbolism in the silver goblin. In the silver goblet, yes. Grail. Here we are. <laughs> Here we are talking about Belshazzar coming out of the <laughs> Worrisome. If a hand reaches down on that board, I'm gone. We're all clearing out, huh? Well, that's going on, Eric. <laughs> So verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication, and so he carried me away in the spirit of the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now we can't take time on that right now. When we come to Daniel 7, we'll discuss a little more. We've already noted it in germ form, that these seven heads and ten horns are a picture of the same kingdom which were seen in the kingdoms, I should say, which were seen in the feet of the image of Daniel 2, and which would be seen in the ten horns on the beast image of Daniel's dream in chapter 7. This is the kingdom, the federated European kingdom of the Antichrist. Verse 3. Okay, 4 now. And the woman was arrayed in scarlet color, bedecked with gold, precious stones, pearls, and so forth, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And you understand that fornication in the Scripture describes spiritual unfaithfulness. And this woman is riding to power on the back of this Antichrist kingdom. So he is using the religious system as long as it serves his purpose, and when it ceases to serve his purpose, he's going to destroy it with fire. That is to say, when he has solidified his kingdom by this false Christianity this Christendom system, then he will destroy that system and receive to himself personal worship, which is what he's been after all along. Verse 5, And upon her forehead was the name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and abomination of the earth. Now Jerusalem, which is above, is the mother of us all, those who are virgin in Christ Jesus. And always you see this contrast uh, parallels as you follow the, the <coughs> distinction between uh, the mystery of iniquity and the mystery of God. Uh, for example, just as Jesus has a virgin bride, the Antichrist has a harlot woman. Just as Jesus has a holy city, the New Jerusalem, uh, Satan has a, a mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots. You can always find these contrasts. You have an anti-God in the dragon, an anti-Holy Spirit in, in uh, the... Uh, a false prophet and an antichrist in that uh, beast reigning over the kingdoms. Always that counterfeit of everything that God does. Verse 6, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and I saw her and I wondered with great wonder. And the angel said unto me, Why dost thou wonder? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and shall go into perdition. Again, we'll talk more about that when we come to chapter 7, but that is the rise of the Antichrist's kingdom. And they, shall, they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Now you notice their names aren't in the book of life, and that's why they're deceived by that mystery. When they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is, and here is the mind that hath wisdom, the seven heads are seven mountains, or kingdoms, upon which the woman sitteth. These are seven kings. Five are fallen, one is, the other is not yet come. It's a reference to the Roman empires. Five had fallen, one is, that was Nero in the time that uh, uh, 
John wrote, the one that is, the other is not yet come, and when he comes, he must continue a short space, that's three and a half years, the first half of Daniel's 70th week, and the beast that was and is not, he is the eighth. At the end of three and one half years of peace, then he's going to be done away with and rise again on the scene, and he'll be the eighth, and he will come as that antichrist and not that pseudo-Christ that he was at the outset. You all with me in all that? You remember we addressed Daniel's 70th week in one of our lessons? And we noted to you that it had two parts to it, each of three and one-half years. Yeah. And we indicated to you that he was going to come on the earth after the church is taken out bringing peace. That's the rider on the white horse in Revelation chapter 6. Uh, that's the first half of Daniel's 70th week when a treaty, T-R-E-A-T-Y, hmm? is that right? When the treaty is made with this European kingdom for one week, and in the midst of the week, that uh, uh, treaty or agreement is going to be broken, and he's going to cause the sacrifice of oblation to cease, and war is going to break out on the earth. Now, this seventh ruler is in this period. The eighth will appear out of the seven during the last half of that time. Now, when that eighth appears, he will have done with this system of false Christianity. By the way, that system of false Christianity it's, is working the in the depths of its mystery in this time in what is commonly known as humanism. When the Humanist Manifesto was produced in the 30s, it was a subtle work of Satan to produce something that looked Christian but wasn't so that it might be suggested to us that all of us have the potential to be a Jesus, and you don't need God for that, and it's the same lie that the snake told the woman in the garden, you'll be, in the day you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So the lie is, you can be like God without God. You only be, God wants you to be like God. You know that God wants you to be like God? That's His purpose in the first place. You are predestined as a child of God to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's what He's after. But the only way you can be that is in God. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. No, I don't know. Okay. I will say this. If I'd have said it, I'd have said this. You'll notice it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know what's suggested in that? The snake is not telling people to go be wicked. He's telling people to go be righteous without God. Go, people go be wicked by themselves. They don't need any encouragement to do that. That's just the direct result of the fall and our being alienated from God. The work of Satan is not the drunk and the gutter. It's the preacher and the pulpit. And so he's saying, go be righteous without God and you'll discover you can be like God without God. That's the whole humanist principle. That's the lie of the snake. Peggy first. Yes. The seventh and the eighth, are they the same person? Yes. They are the same person. So just like Christ was resurrected, this fellow is going to be too. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. By the power of Satan, he's going to be raised up and he will become the incarnation of all that Satan is here, just as Christ in the incarnation was was uh, uh, the all the, uh, that God is. Yes. Uh, Carol. Um, wouldn't you say the New Age movement is a counterfeit religion? Wouldn't it fit into the back? Well, see, the New Age movement is humanism. All these rainbow, the New Age movement, all that alphabetical outfit that's going at us is, uh, you know, if you turn them upside down, you don't know which one to fall out of the bag first. They're all the same thing in just different segments of that same heresy. Deception. Man likes to be flattered, you know, and told that he's good and that he has the potential to be good. The fact of the matter is, in the words of the Apostle Paul, in me that is in my flesh dwelleth. No good thing. No good thing. Sooner I come to that recognition, the happier I'll be. It's a marvelous thing to know the grace of God. Could you name some of the things, you know, the rainbow? Well, let me do better than that. Let me recommend you to a book that lists them all and discusses precisely what they're teaching. All right? Uh, uh, yeah, I said I'll give you the name of the book. Now, I went from his past. I got it. David Hunt wrote it. I'll get it in a minute. Peace, Prosperity, and the Coming Holocaust. David Hunt. Peace, Prosperity, and the Coming Holocaust. Now, David Hunt has made an in-depth study of all of these outfits and, 
and he'll list not only the names of them, but everything that they're teaching. Yes, the cultic. That one. Yeah, there's an. There's another one that he's got out now that's raising a great deal of controversy in the body of Christ. But I think wisdom tells us that uh, he's giving us a good warning. Uh, the uh, seduction of uh, Christianity. It's a good warning. It raises the hackles on a lot of people's neck, but sometimes that's good for us. If our, again, in the words of Paul, it is. Uh, necessary that there be divisions among you, that those that are approved might be made manifest. There are occasions that God comes into the midst of the people of God and just kind of stirs up these uh, divisions so that uh, those that are the Lord's can be seen in contrast to those that aren't. And I think that David Hunt's doing that with that one book. Now that I've whet your appetite, you can go buy that. The booksellers will appreciate that. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to let, come over to verse 14 with me in this now. And these shall make war with the Lamb. <coughs> and the Lamb shall overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. That's kind of an afterthought statement there. And they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. And He said unto me, The waters on which thou sawest where the harlot sitteth are peoples and multitudes and tribes are nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the harlot and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. That's when the Antichrist turns his ten nations loose to destroy this religious system so that he can bring worship together focused on the dragon and upon himself. That's the message you have in Revelation 13. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. All right, uh, any comment or question up to this point? Alright, if Daniel's prophecy then is prophesying the destruction of this kingdom, let's come back and have a look. We'll look at chapter 18. Come back with me to, to Jeremiah chapter 50. Now I'm just going to suggest this to you. I can't give you chapter and verse to prove it. No nation is ever addressed in the Word of God except as it touches the nation of Israel. That's the only real thing that makes any nation important to the Lord as it touches the nation of Israel. Now, I'm just going to hit a few verses here and leave it with you. Other men have discussed this at length. Chapters 50 and 51 prophesy the destruction of the city of Babylon in the last days. Now, you understand, of course, that whenever a prophecy of Scripture is not fully fulfilled, then God will come back and deal with it further. I must give you an example of this, if you'll permit me. To some of you, this is quite repetitious, an old hat. To others of you, perhaps not. Uh, I'm not an artist nor the son of an artist, but you'll bear with my artwork. There is, uh, well, matter of fact, it's in the news a lot today. There is on the coast of the Mediterranean city a city called Tyre. Now, the Tyre that's there today, maybe I ought to put caramel in here, all right. The Tyre that's there today is not the Tyre of the ancient uh, prophecy of Ezekiel. Here's a Nile down here, okay? So we got the Holy Land. Right up here was a, is a city of Tyre. But there is on the coast of, uh, what's the name of that country? Lebanon, what used to be ancient Phoenicia, an isthmus. It's a little larger than it is, but for vision's sake. God brought prophecy against the city of Tyre in Ezekiel chapter 27. He said, I'm going to bring many nations against you. He said, I'm going to destroy you utterly. They're going to cast your rock and your timbers into the midst of the sea, and I'm going to make you like the top of a rock, and you'll become like the place for the spreading of nets. Now that prophecy took about 300 years to fulfill. God's never in a hurry. If you don't see God doing everything you expected Him to do in any given prophecy, the very moment that it starts, just give Him a little time, He'll get to it. Even if it takes Him a couple of thousand years. Because He doesn't live in time, He lives in eternity. And it's a matter of whether he does it on Monday or on Thursday. In his economy, he's dealing with man in a 6,000-year week, or a week of millenniums, if you would. And if he didn't get to it on Monday, he'll get to it by Thursday. Give him a little time. So the prophecy was that he would destroy that kingdom. 
The kingdom of Babylon was brought against the city of Tyre. I'm taking a lot of time to say this, but I think this needs to be noted. Babylon came against Tyre at about 607 B.C. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, oh, I'm preempting here, I'm so sorry. The city of Tyre was built at that time on the land. And Nebuchadnezzar came against this city with all of his great machines, and they just, since they were, of course, a maritime colony, they just got, I'm going to exaggerate the size of this, into their ships and took all of their go, uh, goods in the course of this siege, and they sailed out to an island out here. And they rebuilt the city of Tyre on this island, and Nebuchadnezzar came in, and he wrecked the walls and, and the timber and brought it down, but there was nothing left there. All of the goods, all the wealth, all the clothing, all the... Uh, uh, you say, uh, merchandise of the city, they had moved out to this island. And Nebuchadnezzar, having no ships and not being able to get out to the island, he just moved on south toward the Holy Land. And, of course, his invasion came to Judah in 606 uh, B.C. when he carried it away, his first carrying away. Now, the prophecy was that God would cast their rock and their timber into the midst of the sea, and it would be like the top of the rock. Now, Nebuchadnezzar didn't do that. And so we can look at the destruction of Tyre if we were there in his day, and we would say, well, that prophecy was just a, uh, uh, a hyperbole, and God was exaggerating to show the severity. No, not so. God said it would be like the top of a rock. In 334 B.C. came a fellow named Alexander the Grape, the kids say, huh? And he came against this same city, and here was Tyre by that time thriving on this island as a maritime base. And of course there was some commerce being carried on on the land again for convenience, but the seat of the, of the city was on this island. And Alexander came against it, and he, like Nebuchadnezzar, had no ships. But he was a little more undaunted than was Nebuchadnezzar, and so Alexander turned all of his war machines into what we would call bulldozers, and he began to scrape the rock and the rubble and the timber of the city of Tyre out into the sea. And he continued to scrape it out with his war machines, being a patient individual in war, until he built a causeway all the way out to that city, and he came out and destroyed it. And that left where Tyre was, like the top of a rock, and it is to this day a place for the spreading of nets, just like God said. Now you give him a little time. If he hasn't done it, he will. If therefore the prophecies of the destruction of the city of Babylon have not come to pass in total, and they haven't, then you can count on the Lord going back and dealing with it fully in his time when he's prepared. Now, having said that, if these prophecies of 50 and 51 of Jeremiah address themselves to the destruction of Babylon, there is that secondary meaning that needs to be seen. For example, when the prophecy of Daniel addresses the, the abomination of desolation, that was a prophecy fulfilled in about 164 B.C. when uh, Antiochus Epiphanes offered a sow on the altar of God in Jerusalem. But Jesus, coming along 190 years later, said, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, flee the mountains. Well, it had already been fulfilled. So what was Jesus saying? That what was historically fulfilled is going to find a repeat in future experience. So I would suggest to you that the same might be said for these prophecies of Jeremiah 50 and 51. Let me read some verses to you. Verse 11 of 50. Because you were glad, because you rejoiced over you destroyers of my inheritance, because you are grown fat like the heifer at grass and bellow like the bulls, your mother shall be completely confounded. She that bore you shall be ashamed. Behold, the hindermost of the nation shall be a wilderness and a dry land and a desert. Babylon had no mother. But we do. Don't we? Yep. Who is the last of the great world empires? We are. That's the meaning of the phrase hindermost, last of the world empires. And we're it. So there's two phrases there that can't apply 
to the kingdom of Babylon. She was the first of the great world empires, not the last. If you want to come over to verse 23, how is the hammer of the whole earth cut asunder? The great military power of all the earth. Move over to verse 37. A sword is upon their horses and upon their chariots and upon all the, all the mongreled people that are in the midst of her. We are the only nation of the world that are a mongrel people. Really? You go to France, you see Frenchmen. You go to Spain, you see Spanish. Uh, go to Germany, you see Germans. Come to America and you see all of them. You see all of them in one person. Verse 38. A drought is upon our waters. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped part of it. Uh, they shall become like women. A sword is upon her treasuries and they shall be robbed. Interesting, what's happening to our treasuries? Hello, they are literally being drained. And it seems like nothing we are able to do helps that. Verse 38, A drought is upon her waters, and they shall be dried up, for it is a land of carb... By the way, I just throw it out for what it's worth. What's the big worry in this country now? Water pollution, water shortage, etc. For it is the land of carved images... You allow me to rephrase that? Carved inventions. And they are mad over their inventions. Hello? Verse 7 of chapter 51. Babylon has been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. The golden cup addresses its economic benefits to the world, and we've literally made the world drunk with our economic activities. And the nations are drunk with her wine. Therefore, the nations are mad. Somebody said one time, best... Chapter 18 this time. <coughs> Would you spell his last name, please? Logsdon, L-O-G-E-S-D-O-N. S. Franklin Logsdon. Chapter 18. Now, as chapter 17 addressed the destruction of Babylon spiritually, chapter 18 will address the destruction of Babylon physically, politically, if you would. Verse 1, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven and having, a great, uh, having great power, and the earth was made bright by his glory, and he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. More literally, did fall, did fall. It's a, a method which in Hebrew would, would emphasize finality. And has become the habitation of demons and the hold of every foul spirit and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Verse 7. How much she hath glorified herself and lived luxuriously. So much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen. I am no widow. I shall see no sorrow. Verse 10. Standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buys her merchandise anymore. The merchandise of gold, silver, precious stones. I want you to watch this category now. Gold, silver, precious stones, pearls. Fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, thion wood. You notice it's constantly reducing in value. All kinds of vessels of ivory, all kinds of vessels of most precious wood, of bronze, of iron, of marble, of cinnamon, of incense, of ointments, of frankincense, and wine, and oil, and fine flour, and wheat, and cattle, mm -hmm. and sheep, and horses, and chariots, and slaves, and the souls of men. Cheapest thing in any dictatorship is the souls of men. And the fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee, and all the things which were dainty and the sumptuous are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. And that's a double negative in the Greek structure. In the English, that's poor English, but in Greek it's used for emphasis. You occasionally find a triple negative, like uh, the promise of uh, Hebrews 13, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That's a triple negative in the Greek. This is a double negative. No, no more at all in thee. The merchants of these things who were made rich by her shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. I want you to see a contrast in attitudes now. 
The merchants of the earth are weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city which was clothed in fine linen, purple, scarlet, bedecked with gold, precious stones, pearls, in one hour so great riches are come to nothing. And every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors, as many as trade by sea, stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city which was made rich, all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness, for in one hour she is made desolate. Now I want you to see the heavenly view of her destruction. Rejoice over her, verse 20. Thou heaven, and all ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. And there's those double negatives again. Babylon shall be thrown down, last part of verse 21, and shall be found no, no more at all. And the voice of harpers and minstrels and flute players and trumpets shall be heard no, no more at all in thee. And no craftsman of whatever craft shall be found, no, no more at all in thee. And the sound of millstone shall be heard, no, no more at all in thee. And the light of the lamp shall shine, no, no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride shall be heard, no, no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. Pretty final judgment. Interesting contrast in points of view there. All right, one other thing. I want to come to me with to Ezekiel's prophecy, please. I'll have done with this. Ezekiel 38. Now you're familiar with Ezekiel 38 probably as it prophesies the destruction of the kingdom of Russia as Russia will ultimately come down upon the land of Israel. It is no secret to any believer that that's going to happen. It's not a secret to pagan Israel that it's going to happen. They recognize it, that eventually it's going to come. They don't know when. We don't know when, but they know it's going to happen. We had a cab driver tell us over there one time, you just send us, send us the money and send us the tanks and send us the planes and we'll fight the Russians. He said, we don't want one American to die on Israeli soil. I thought that was an interesting comment. Other nations don't seem to be too concerned about that. But it was interesting to me that they know they're going to fight the Russians, who the real foe is. All right, the first part of this prophecy addresses Gog and Magog, or Russia coming down upon the land of Israel. And I want to read a few, through a few verses, and then I'm going to show you a transition. You wonder how perhaps the United States, if it is Babylon, is going to be destroyed? Verse 4, I will turn thee back and will put hooks in thy jaws, because Russia doesn't want to come against Israel, but God's going to make them. You'll parallel that in Isaiah 30 and 28. And I will turn thee back and put hooks in thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth, and all thine army and horses and horsemen, all of them clothed all sorts of armor, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords, and he begins to list the nations that are going to be in league with her. Verse 8, After many days thou shalt be visited in the latter years. He's telling us when it's going to happen. It's going to be in the last days that this will happen. In the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword. There's Israel recovered from all of the nations of its affliction, gathered out of many peoples against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste. But it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. Time of peace and safety, which we addressed a moment ago. And thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land. Thou and all thy hordes and many peoples with thee. Now, verse 10. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall also come to pass that at the same time. Now we're talking about something else going to happen at the same time. At the same time shall things come into thy mind, and thou shalt think an evil thought, and thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I'll just pitch that out to you for what it's worth. You know, every European ancient land was originally a land of walled villages. But of course, we never were. And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages, and I will go to those that are at rest, who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited, and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations who have gotten cattle and goods and who dwell in the midst of the land, and so forth. 
just throw that out to you. Pardon me. <clears throat> For what it's worth, any comments or questions? Okay. Yes, ma'am. Just somewhere around Ezekiel 38, isn't there also a copy of prophecy that talks about the islands that dwell in safety? Does that ring a bell? The coasts. Yes. Yes. The coasts that dwell. Islands is a, is a King, Trans, King James translation of the word coast. Coastlands. Uh, not offhand, no. Come back with me to 2 Thessalonians, please. 2 Thessalonians, the epistle of Paul, of course, addressing the deliverance of the church away from that hour of trial, has some interesting things to say to us regarding this mystery of iniquity and the destruction of Babylon. Verse 3. 2 Thessalonians 2, I'm sorry, in verse 3. Y'all still there? Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, that is the day of the Lord, shall not come except there come the falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you I told you these things, and now ye know what restrains that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. That's in Paul's day now, is already well at work within the system of the church. Only he who now hinders will continue to hinder until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked one be revealed. That's the Antichrist. Whom the Lord shall destroy, consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, the fourth shining of his arrival, literally, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. That's the two beasts that you have in Revelation 13. With all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all might be judged to believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now here's the picture he's giving you. Somebody will say to us every now and then, well, if this thing you're preaching about the translation of the church is true, I'll wait to see if you get translated, then I'll believe it. No, he won't. God says those who refuse the love of the truth, he will send them strong delusion. When the church of Jesus Christ is translated, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verse 13 and following, then God is going to cause that delusion to arise in the earth. Anyone who has rejected the truth given to them prior to this time will be under that delusion and believe the lie. The lie is a reference to the lie that was told in the garden we made reference to a moment ago. Eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you'll be like God. Man is going to be out to be like God, but without God. The only way you will be like God is to come through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They are suggesting that you don't need to do that just as Satan did. And so here comes this deception, this mystery of iniquity, until the middle of the tribulation, and arises then this wicked one, same one we referred to earlier, this Antichrist, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So at the second coming of Jesus Christ, when he comes to the earth to set up his kingdom, all of this that we've addressed will have transpired. At this point then, in the midst of Daniel's 70th week, three and a half years here, three and a half years here, this harlot woman will ride to power on the back of the beast. Uh, uh, say that word for me. It starts with a B. Beast, thank you, yes. She's going to come to power riding on his back, this scarlet-colored beast. Right here at this point, when this fellow is slain and resurrected, he's going to give these ten kings that are under his authority power, and they're going to hate the whore and destroy her with fire. Then this fellow is going to receive personal worship as he is the incarnation of Satan, the dragon. And he's going to cause people to worship the dragon, the uh, uh, second beast out of the earth, the false prophet, I'm hastening, I'm sorry, but how you spell prophet? Something like that, huh? This false prophet is going to cause people to worship the beast who had the deadly wound that was healed, and the beast in turn worshiped the dragon because the dragon gives the beast his power. 
So the whole system is a hellish trinity. Here's an anti-father, an anti-Christ, and an anti-Holy Spirit. Any question or comment? That's an awful lot in a nutshell. I'm a little bit embarrassed that I deal with it that way. But. Mystery, Babylon the Great. Mystery in the sense of the spirit. Mystery in the sense of its politics. Ending ultimately in destruction. Be glad you're on the right side. Let's pray. Father, we so thank you for the promises of life in Christ Jesus. Yea and amen to the glory of God by us. We bless you, Father, for your loving kindness towards your people that you've given us understanding. Thank you, Father, for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. So grateful, Lord, that you've made us partakers of the mystery of God. Thank you, Lord. Great is the mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh. How we bless your wonderful name for the mercies found in your Son. Amen. Amen. Bless you all.